We're looking again in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Last week I spoke about the priority of love. I reminded us that Paul's discussion on love finds its place in the section of, verse, of chapters 12 through 14 where his primary discussion is on spiritual gifts and, and for a large part on the problems that spiritual gifts had caused within the uh, Corinthian church because of jealousy and envy and misuse and misunderstanding of those gifts. But Paul's point in chapter 13 as he inserts this in the midst of this discussion is to show the priority of love, that it does not matter what you may do in life, how great you may perform, how, how great your success may be. If it's not done in love, it has no value, especially eternal value. And as I understand Paul's discussion, he will not only talk about the permanence of love, but the temporality of those supernatural gifts that were so prevalent in the life of Jesus in the apostolic times, and that those things would pass, and as I understand, they have largely passed, but love goes on forever. And so he exalts love so that we may pursue love as the foundation of everything we do in life. He's not diminishing what we do. He's just establishing that love must be at the foundation. Let me begin by reading our text, or let me say I will quote a portion of it from the King James Version, since that's how I learned it. If you learned it in the King James, you can say it along with me. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mystery and all knowledge and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and Though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth nothing. Love suffers long. Love envieth not. It vaunts not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, is not easily provoked, thinks no evil rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Love never fails. I'll pause there this morning because that's the portion we will look at today. There are 16 characteristics of love. I call them the perfections of love. We'll probably get to about half of them this morning. But he unpacks what love looks like. You know, it's one thing to say, I love you. And you should say, I love you. 
But as John said, let us not love merely in words, but in deed, in what we do, and in truth, in genuineness. So love is always active in some way. It always displays itself in some way. And uh, Paul will tell us 16 of those ways that love becomes evident in someone's life. I remind you that the love that he's talking about is not the sexual love of marriage, nor is it the friendly love of friends, nor the natural love of family. All of those are important loves. But really at the root of those kinds of love is really this agape love, this love that has as its primary character self-denial. In some sense, the other forms of love, family love, sexual love, friendly love, can all at times be self-serving. But biblical love, the love of which he speaks here, is never self-serving. It is always other person-oriented. It is self-denying, not focused on self-gratification. This is the kind of love which characterizes the nature of God. It is the love that is most vividly displayed in the giving of Christ on the cross. It's this love that Jesus said is our primary calling toward God and our primary calling toward each other. Jesus also said that it's this love that is the central, prime, identifying mark of all of those who are followers of Jesus Christ. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It is not natural. It is supernatural. It is empowered by the indwelling Spirit of God. So we've looked at the priority of love, that love surpasses anything that we can do. It's really at the root of everything that we do. But this morning we look at the perfections of love in verses 4 through 7. I'll read it again this time in the modern version, the ESV. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Each of these descriptions, patient, kind, envy, boasting, all of them are in verbal forms. They're not simply adjectives, but they are, they are action verbs reminding us that love is always something that is active. It is, it is exhibiting or manifesting itself in, in certain ways. It is either performing an action, or we will see that love is often restraining certain actions and feelings in life. That's what love does. 
In verses 4 through 6, the first 11 things he says about love, it's good to note that only three of them are what we would call positive attributes of love. Only three of these 11. The other statements tell us what love does not do. But he makes three statements that tell us positively what does love look like. And they are love is patient, love is kind, and love is honest, it's truthful, it rejoices in the truth. So the kind of love he's talking about is a kind of love that always produces patience, it's always kind, and it's always honest. It tells the truth. The negatives that are given are things that, by the grace of God, love restrains those capacities, those works of the flesh that we saw in Galatians 5 are are, are possible in all of us, but love does not do certain things. If I love you, then there are eight things in this text that I will never do if I love someone. And again, it's good to be reminded that these uh, qualities, these perfections of love are not something that we work to produce, but they are something that come into our life as we live a life of repentance and faith and dependence upon the Spirit of God. Otherwise, I will be very impatient or, and very unkind and dishonest when it is to my benefit to be dishonest. When I look at these characteristics, I find that, that there is in some of them, uh, some of the pairs that are given, there's both what I call a passive and an active response. For instance, he says, love is patient. That is a passive response. But then the parallel, the twin to that, the other side of the coin is, love is kind. And when I think of being patient and being kind, these qualities are most often tested and they are most clearly manifested in the presence of evil. It's easy to be patient when life is easy and it's easy to be kind when someone is nice to you. But love produces patience and kindness, even in the midst of evil. These are two qualities, I think, that are exemplified in God's dealing with me and with you. In regard to our sin and our failures, he is patient. If God wasn't patient, how many of us would have been here this morning? As the psalmist said, if, if God would mark iniquities. Who would stand? I've told you before that sometimes people argue, you know, how can a good God allow evil to exist in, in this world? And uh, you, you ask them, well, do, would you like God to wipe out all the evil? Yes, yes, all the evil. 
Yes, if he's a good God, wipe out all the evil. So at midnight tonight, if God said, I will, I will destroy everyone who has sinned in the last 24 hours, would you be here? Now, you don't want God to wipe out all evil. You just want him to wipe out the evil that you don't like or you think is unjust or you think is great. But you really don't want God to wipe out all evil or you wouldn't be here. You should thank God for his patience that he puts up with you. You're alive today. You lived yesterday without any regard to him. You didn't praise him. You didn't thank him. And yet you breathed his air. You lived in his world. You enjoyed the beautiful creation. You woke up this morning alive again, breathing his air. You never thanked him once. And you're alive. God did not kill you for your ingratitude. He's patient. He holds back his wrath against our rebellion. But he's not only patient. He's good. He's kind. He's merciful. And he expresses that in thousands of ways. Not only to believers who, in, who have the privilege of, of enjoying it the most, but even to unbelievers. As Jesus said, God causes the, the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God is a kind and good God. When I think of these qualities of being patient and kind in the midst of evil, I realize that to have them, to have this kind of love and this display of love really depends upon how we see God, how we rest in God's sovereignty. I mean, why am I impatient? And why can I not be kind to someone who does evil to me. It's because I don't trust God's providence. I don't trust that even my pain and my suffering and, and the opposition that might be against me and, 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 and the enemies that I may have, I don't accept that God in his providence has allowed that to be in my life and so I have to take things into my own hand. I have to resist and fix things myself or take vengeance. If I don't rest in God's sovereignty, then I will resist all evil with impatience and resentment and with retaliation. I had the privilege for 50 years of knowing Dawn's dad. Yesterday was the one year reminder, celebration that he went to be with the Lord on August 14, 2020. And as you know, my brother Jim did also the same day. But when I think of my father-in-law, I think of someone who was the epitome of patience, and kindness. And I know so much of what happened in his life that 
many people would have lived with bitterness and resentment and hatred the rest of their lives. I know the betrayals he faced, the disappointments by friends, many by Christians. And I don't think I ever heard my father-in-law ever react in an evil way to those who treated him evil. And he had the ability, which I want to have, is to meet somebody who had done him wrong and to look at him as if he had never done anything wrong, to be kind. Because that's what Jesus said. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you and just pray for them. Someone was telling me recently about the very difficult relationship they were having, how people uh, were intentionally trying to hurt them and push them away and, and their reaction was, you know, I, 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 I hate this, I can't stand this, I want, to, I want to tell them what I think. What should I do? I asked, have you prayed for them? No. Pray for those who despitefully use you. There's a God who hears prayer, a God who works in people's hearts, a God who changes people's lives. Just pray. And if your praying doesn't bring about any change in your circumstances, it will certainly bring about a change in you if your prayer is real because now you are depending on God for the situation you're in. If I don't rest in God's sovereignty, then I take life into my own hands very impatiently and often very unkindly. Love is always patient and kind. But then he adds seven other what I'll call disciplines of grace. The next two are also paired together. They reflect how we see ourselves in relationship to other people. Love does not envy or boast. Love does not live a life of competition. Or we might say, love does not continually make comparisons. We know that envy is the elevation of others, and that boasting is the diminishing of others. Envy is the diminishing of self, while boasting is the elevating of self. We saw this uh, when we looked at Galatians. Both envy and boasting recognize that differences exist among people. There are rich people, there are poor people, there are black people, there are white people. There are educated people, there are uneducated people. And our differences, if I'm poor, my differences can make me filled with envy. If I'm rich, my difference of being rich may fill me with pride and boasting. 
But not necessarily so. It's not our circumstances that determine uh, how we feel or how we look toward others. I have had the, uh, the privilege and joy of knowing a lot of, a lot of few very wealthy people in life and a lot of very poor people in life. And I've known wealthy people that I really enjoyed their fellowship. And I've known wealthy people that I could not stand being around. They were what we would call EGR people. Extra grace was required to be around them. Because they would invite you into their house and they would they would let you know how they acquired everything they had, every piece of art, every piece of china, every furniture, everything about the house. I mean, they would, they would just exalt their possessions and you were feeling like, you know, a midget, a small person. And yet I've been in the house of wealthy people that you were totally unaware of their wealth. And it's like they were unaware of it. It's that they lived with a humble gratitude. They didn't boast. And I've met poor people, poor people who are so agitated about what they don't have and so envious of what others have, and they're just miserable, miserable to be around. And I've met poor people that are an absolute delight. They accept with contentment where God has them in life. And it's not that they don't want more. They don't need more for their happiness. Love does not envy. It never diminishes oneself and elevates others. Love does not boast. It never elevates oneself and diminishes others. Actually, if we were to take these two statements, love does not envy, love does not boast, we could put them in a, state them in a positive way. Love does not envy, we would say, Love appreciates the uniqueness, the beauty, the, the beauty, the giftedness, and the successes of others. If I love somebody, I appreciate what God has done for them in life. Love does not boast. Love sees one's uniqueness, beauty, giftedness, and success as undeserved gifts of God's grace. Imagine if love is in a home where difference is so, so clear. You have a man and a woman, a male and a female, who think differently, who feel differently, who look act differently, who, they are so different. And there are, homes that are filled with, with envy because 
someone is saying, I wish I was not what I am. Or they are looking at the difference in their spouse. And instead of seeing the difference as a God-created difference, they see it as something that is a threat to them because you are not like me. And that creates an alienation in the home. If, if a man does not appreciate how God made a woman to think and to feel so differently than he does, then her very being becomes a source of alienation. But love will never do that. Love will say, God made you the woman you are. God made you to think and to feel and to act the way that you are. And I appreciate that you are not a man like me. I appreciate, as difficult as it may be at times, that when you want to make a point, you take a long journey to get there. But I have to appreciate that. If I don't, it will bother me. I will sit there and say, all right, Get to the bottom line, which unfortunately I have done too often in life. But love doesn't do that. Love does not think oneself better or think of oneself as worse. The Corinthians, we know, had a problem with rivalry and strife. They argued about which teacher in the church they thought was better, who they were a follower of, as if being a follower of Paul or a follower of Peter or a follower of Apollos somehow gave you some distinction, somehow elevated you above others. And Paul reminds them at the end, you know, you, you, you need to remember who you really are. You need to remember your calling. Not many wise men, not many noble, not many mighty were called. God's chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. You need to remember who you are in the eyes of God. Love does not envy. It does not boast. Love is never mindful of how much I know and how much I have and how that makes me superior to, 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 to someone else. Both envy and boasting destroy Christian community. They destroy marriages. They destroy friendship. Because true intimacy is possible only when love reigns. Wherever envy exists or pride exists, that creates a barrier in relationship. It creates distance between people. Whereas love is an invitation. Envy is pushing you away. Boasting is pushing you down. But love says, come into my life. I want you in my life. I want you to be in your life as you are. I said before that the ideal relationship that we have with each other is that of sitting at a table, having a cup of coffee together. No one is on a pedestal higher than someone else, looking down. No one is looking up at someone at a on a pedestal, but simply a cup of coffee face to face 
on level ground. That is how God wants us to relate. No envying, no boasting. There's always something fake and something false about self-inflation. And it's this falseness, this fakery, that prohibits people from becoming genuine and transparent in the relationship with, with, with each other. Love does not envy, it does not boast. He goes on to say love is not arrogant, it is not unapproachable. The Corinthian church was proud, it was full of arrogance. Earlier in, the, in, in this book, Paul rebuked the Corinthian church because they were so arrogant, they were so puffed up that there was a man who was having an, an incestuous relationship with his mother or his stepmother, and they tolerated it, they overlooked it, they thought that this is a sign of great love that I can that I can overlook your sin and tolerate your sin. And Paul says, no, that is not love, that is pride. Because if you love somebody, if you love somebody and you know they are heading down a path of destruction, you warn them, you rescue them, you do everything you can. You don't sit there and say, well, I don't want them to be offended. I, want, don't, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to intrude into their life. All of those statements are selfish. They're pride. They're arrogant. Love says, I will rescue someone who is going down a path of evil. Love is never arrogant. And love is not rude. That's an interesting quality of love. R love never treats others shamefully. And there are two instances, at least in the book of 1 Corinthians, where the Corinthians were treating others shamefully. One of them is in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul sort of indicts women who were behaving shamefully because they were dressing in a way that confused the distinctions between sexes. And this was wrong, he says. It's what we call androgyny today. And I know we can argue in any culture, you know, what is a male dress and what is female dress. But in most cultures, there is something evident that this is male, this is female. I was with one of my uh, grandkids yesterday, and uh, he thought he was being funny, and he was funny. But he had this uh, little thing. I think it looks something like a tutu. Is that what they're called, that ballerinas wear? So he put this on, and he said, I'm a ballerina. I said, no, you're not. I said, are you a girl? He said, no, I'm a boy. I said, well, ballerinas are girls. Oh. He got it. He understood it. 
So in 1 Corinthians 11, women were dressing in a way that confused the distinction between sexes, and Paul says, it's a shame. And then in chapter 11, later in the chapter, there are those who are coming to the Lord's table, and they had a meal before the Lord's table, and some were bringing steak, while others were bringing rice. And those who were eating their steak were flaunting it, probably not even sharing it, and diminishing others. Rudeness. If, again, if we were to reverse this quality, we would say something like this. Love always seeks to honor and serve others and to protect their feelings. Love always does that. Love always seeks to act appropriately and to treat others with respect. Both arrogance and rudeness are rooted in selfishness. But I must say, I must remind us as we look at these qualities that Paul is giving them to us for self-examination. He's not giving them for me to go around and find out, now, who are the rude people in church? You know, you're rude, that's rude, that's rude. Because I believe, I live with this belief, and I believe it's got a biblical basis for it, that my problem in life is not that someone does not love me properly. That is not why I am unhappy in life. My problem, my biggest problem is I don't love others the way that I ought to. And if I love others the way that I ought to before God, whether they love me or not, I will have the quality of life that God wants me to have. So these are here for us to look at ourselves. You know, am I arrogant? Do I diminish others? Am I rude? Do I fail to respect the feelings of, of, of others, the, the, maybe the insecurities of others. Oftentimes, what we might perceive as rudeness may, be, may not be intentional. It may be simply ignorance. I am sure that when I cross cultures, I do things that are not acceptable. I don't do them intentionally. And I expect that most of my Christian friends, especially in Africa, when I you know, don't know the protocols to follow, they accept that I don't know them, that I'm not doing this uh, to diminish them, uh, that I truly love them. And I have found that if you do truly love people, even if you don't know the the culture and the protocols, if you truly love them, if you're kind to them, uh, if you're patient with them, if you truly love them, then they can put up with your, your lack of knowledge about the way that they do things in life. I mean, I would hope I would do that for you. I mean, if you came to my house uh, and kept your shoes on, if I didn't love you, I would be upset. Because we raise five kids, and with five kids, you don't want them walking from outside, inside, with their shoes on. So we developed a habit, everybody leaves their shoes 
at the door. But that's not everybody's protocol. Matter of fact, when I go to somebody's house now, my first inclination is I step inside the door, I kick off my shoes, and somebody says, well, what are you doing that for? So if, I'll put my shoes back on if they insist. I actually prefer having my shoes on. And I prefer that some people keep their shoes on too. Uh, I won't tell you why, but... I think we all need to be careful that we don't judge others by our own cultural standards. We don't characterize others as rude simply because they act in ways that are contrary to our experience and expectation. But if I know, if I know the protocols, if I know the cultural way of doing things, and I intentionally disregard them, then that is not love. I mean, there are times when, you know, I have preached in churches in very hot climates where I have put on a suit and a tie. Now, why anybody would wear a suit and a tie to preach in Africa or Dominican Republic, I don't know. But they do, a lot of them. And if that is what is expected, I will do that. I will sweat and I will suffer. Uh, I will do that. But, you know, if they'll let me come like this, I'll, I'll be doubly happy. But if you know the protocol, if you know what is expected, then love says what Paul said, I will become all things to all men that by all means I might save some. If it will give me a ministry into someone's life, then I should do everything possible in love not to offend them intentionally. I'm always, in my mind, struggling with judging people because I have, you know, I have a way that I think life should work. And I keep, have to keep reminding myself, no, that's, you know, the way that you see life isn't the way that others see life. You know, when, when I'm walking down the sidewalk, I walk on the right side. That's where people walk. And if someone's coming the other way, walking in my lane, there's something inside me that says, I'm going to run them over. <laughs> but I shouldn't. Another thing in my mind says, you know, what are, what are you, stupid? Don't you know how people walk? You know, you drive on the right side of the street, you walk on the right side of the sidewalk. Or I see a guy walking down the street with his, uh, with his girlfriend, and she's walking on the curbside, and he's walking on the inside, and I'm thinking, what's wrong with this guy? He doesn't know that, you know, if a car comes by and splashes water up that he's supposed to be closest to the curb. You know, if a car comes off the street and it's going to hit somebody, let it hit, hit, protect. But those are my protocols, you know, that you open a door for a woman. When a woman enters a room, you stand up. You know, as a man, you never shake hands sitting down. You know, somebody wants to shake your hand, you... That's the way I think, but 
Most of the world does not think that way. So are they rude? No, they're not rude. They just have a different way of understanding life. Love is trying to figure those things out in relationship. Love cares about whether I offend somebody. I don't want to ever intentionally do that. And if I find out that I did, then I want to go and say, you know, forgive me, I did not know. I will, you know, I will, I will, I will try. And hopefully on the other side, there's gracious people who love also, who understand. You don't know the way we do things. So, you know, I, I accept that. Why is all of this important? Not just to get along with people. We want to do that. But we want to have ministry in the lives of people. As Christians, I want to encourage you to walk with Christ and follow Christ. But I can't do that very well if you are offended by me or hurt by me or feel deeply in love by me. So love is the foundation of any ministry. I'll never share the gospel with my, my neighbor because, you know, he thinks I disrespect him or I take advantage of him or I don't care about him or I offend him. I'll never get to talk to him if he does not believe that I love him. And we love people by the way we act. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Love is self-denying. And that's what the cross reminds us, us, reminds us of all the time. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Beloved, as Aline read, let us love one another. For love is of God and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. Let us love one another. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, give us grace and mercy, thank you for your patience with us, your gentle kindness to us in the midst of all of our failures. Thank you for your constant work in drawing us closer to you. Continue that work, we pray. Do a stronger work in our lives. Make us a people who truly love you and love others in this biblical way. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.